y'all join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we, uh, a lot of us build walls around our heart to protect ourselves. A lot of us uh, build, build walls around our, our lives to protect ourselves. Uh, maybe it's through money or relationships or family. I pray we'd know that our only true for- fortress is you. And within that fortress, we can find rest and peace and hope. So I pray that you break any walls surrounding our hearts and melt any unforgiveness or, or prejudice uh, or any real hate, perhaps, and that you would enter in and be our fortress. I pray that for my life. I pray that for the life of this church and the families gathered here. That we'd know you as our fortress and we'd come to you for rest. Thank you, Jesus, for giving everything to us, your life, and defeating death. In your name we pray. Amen. I thank you all again for being here this morning. And if you would, uh, if you have your Bible... Uh, or take a Bible, stay in Matthew 26. We're going to stay in this passage that Jill read, uh, verse uh, 47 through 56. And we are in this series, moving to Easter, and we're calling it Last Night. So what we're doing is looking at the scenes of Jesus' life on the last night before he died on the cross. And in doing so, we're really walking together, moving together to the cross, as a church. But the reason we're looking at these scenes is I want to do all I can to really help us understand the why behind some of these scenes. Uh, I like to say, you know, Easter uh, or Lent is a very emotional time. We can, uh, you know, we can see these scenes in Scripture. We can read them. Maybe see them, you know, in a, uh, in a TV show or, or movie. Uh, and we can be very moved by and particularly, then Good Friday, we're, we're very moved. But it's important to understand why. Like, why these things happen? Why did Jesus say the things he did in the midst of this last night? So I want to help you, uh, again, all I can to understand the why of this last night. Now, last week we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we talked about the cup. The cup that Jesus prayed would be taken from him which was the cup of wrath. And this week, we're still in the garden, but we're looking at his arrest. Uh, now, I was, uh, I was talking, I actually was talking with Dr. Jack Morarty. He's standing back there. I, I know, I, I'm not trying to call you out, Jack, but we were talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, which is one of his favorite passages, favorite scenes. And he quoted, I don't know who he quoted, but he said, really, the cross happened at the Garden of Gethsemane. As in, okay, he wasn't nailed to the cross, but in his mind, in his soul, that's when he was nailed to the cross. That's where he decided, yes, I'm going to go for them. Yes, I'm going to take the cup, as we talked about last week. So the Garden of Gethsemane, and if you know Jack, I think he'd he'd prefer us preach like a 10-week sermon series on the Garden of Gethsemane, and like, you know, maybe half of y'all know Jack. But it is a very powerful passage, and it is really the cross, because where Jesus said, I'm going to go to that cross, I'm going to take it for them and internally, inside, uh, he died to self. 
he died to his will and said, not my will, Father, your will. And what is interesting is the cross in that day and time. If you saw a cross, we've got, you know, we've got a cross there as you walk out. You see it, two crosses up here. But in that day and time, if you saw the cross, you would immediately think shame, defeat, scorn, embarrassment. I mean, imagine hanging from a cross, sometimes days at a time, death. And yet, Christians were totally changed by that symbol, by the cross. How is that? Why is that? I believe Jesus tells us here in this passage. As Christians, as the church, it's very easy to say we need to live life by the cross. We need to have in our hearts a life by the cross. We need to live by the cross. Yes, we should, but we're like, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? A life by the cross. I believe we see it in this passage. You can say life by the cross is many things, but what I want to say to you today is life by the cross is a committed life, it's a countercultural life, and it is a calm life. And we can see these three things for our lives in the here and now in this passage as Jesus is moving towards the cross and taking his cross for us in his heart. So let's look at this. First off, life by the cross is a committed life. We see this in Judas' betrayal. Judas' betrayal. Now, first off, Judas, uh, you know, we don't preach about him a lot because he didn't really do anything uh, good at all, except betray Jesus. But it's interesting that Judas is either seen, it's kind of one or two ways. Uh, throughout the history of the church, many have seen Judas as like the worst sinner uh, ever in history. Uh, I, uh, I haven't read this book. It's supposed to be famous. I probably should. But uh, Dante's Inferno, I mean, I think it was written, I don't know, 1400s or something. But it's a, supposedly a, this classic book. But in Dante's Inferno, there are nine circles or levels of hell, and it gets worse as you go further down. It's kind of this fascinating image of hell, and the ninth circle of hell is is like the worst, and it's where the worst sinners are. And you know, I, I kind of I have used this analogy, and I'm a sports fanatic, so I may throw sports references out. But you know, a lot of folks like to think in the ninth circle of hell uh, are the Duke fans, uh, are the Yankee fans, um, which I'm a fan of both. Uh, because I like winners, and one of my teams doesn't win as often as I'd like. But anyway, we won't go there. But, you know, you say that, I always say ninth circle of hell is like LSU fans and Red Sox fans. Don't, I'm not trying to offend anybody. But, you know, you can use that as the place for certain fans. Anyway, seriously, in the book, the ninth circle of hell, there's even a place below that, which is a lake of ice, and only Judas is there. Only Judas. And he's saying, like, Judas is the worst sinner of, of all time, of history. And now, uh, in certain movies or, or depictions, we really see Judas as kind of more of like a, you know, he's just sympathetic, um, you know, he's messed up, and he's got some psychological issues, and Satan uses him, and then he hangs himself. And so it's easy to kind of feel sorry for Judas, like he was, you know, he, he, got, uh, he got manipulated, you know, by the devil. I mean, a lot of, I think, movies portray him in that light. Uh, neither is accurate. Uh, he definitely wasn't the worst, but definitely not the best. Jesus, Judas was, uh, he was, he was a pretty bad dude. He's not a good dude. Here's why. He betrayed Jesus. Yes, you know that. But 
and I only learned that this, uh, this week. Verse 49, when he comes to Jesus and he says, Greetings, Rabbi, uh, as the sign for them to arrest Jesus. A disciple in that time would never go to his teacher and like initiate the greet, like, you know, put his hand out first. Uh, it was demeaning to the teacher or the master. It was a show of blatant disrespect. And Judas, it was like him going to Jesus and really saying, you ain't got nothing on me. You're not better than me. I'm just as good as you, if not better than you. I mean, that's what Judas was doing. That's what he was saying. That's what he was thinking. Now, I always say this, or I've said this before, you know, would we betray Jesus? And all of us, I think, would say, no, never. But what's interesting is the response of the disciples earlier in this chapter when Jesus says in the Last Supper, one of you will betray me. We're going to put this verse up on screen. This is Matthew 26, verse 21 and 22. It says, as they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, the disciples, and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? See, the disciples, and we should too, they knew their own hearts. I always say we're all got this massive anti-authority streak. None of us in our, really our hearts, we, we like to be led. We want to be our own masters, our own rulers, our own God. And it's so interesting, if you look at that scene, the disciples are saying, is it I, is it I? Because they knew their hearts. They probably all had had this, this self-interest, this desire to be above their master. As do we. As do we. And so, for Judas, he fell prey to that temptation. And he said, I am better. I will sell Jesus out. And I want to give you all an analogy. See, I think every person, we either... We either sell Jesus or we serve Jesus. Sell or serve. Think about a stock. Some of you are in business. Some of you may buy and sell stocks. You know, we, we see a stock and we, we buy a stock. We purchase a stock to profit our life. And then if it is not profiting us, we will sell it. So take Judas. He got Jesus. He got Jesus and it was profiting him to be with this man who was feeding the thousands and healing and saying, hey, I'm a, uh, I'm a disciple of this great master who might be a Messiah. It was profiting him. But then as Jesus began to be scorned, and as Judas saw the picture that there were people who wanted to kill him, people in power, he sold Jesus out. Jesus had begun to not profit Judas. You're like, how do we, I mean, what do you mean we sell Jesus? We Think about it. Many of us, look, and I'll include me in this camp. Many of us initially come to Jesus because we're like, he's going to profit me. He's going to give me this happy life. And if we aren't happy or we stop being happy, or maybe Jesus calls us to something that's hard and challenging, it may be as simple as, as like serving coffee at a church or, or going on a mission trip or doing local mission. But when it gets convicting and challenging, the temptation is to sell them out. And I don't mean just like literally sell them out, but walk away. Or say, I'm, I'm kind of done with Jesus. Or fall astray. So the question for us as Christians, if we've received Christ, do we sell Him or do we serve Him? Do we sell Jesus to make our life happy? Or do we use our life to serve Him and make Him happy? 
It's two totally different ways of looking at your faith and your heart and where you are in your walk with Christ. And all of us come to that choice. Do we sell him or do we serve him? If you just sold him out. Sometimes the serving is harder. Sometimes the serving does not you know, make for a happy life. I believe it makes for a purposeful life, a joy-filled life, a joy that many people don't know, a peaceful life, but the happiness that we may want initially, it might not bring. It, it might, but I just can't promise that. But we sell or we serve Jesus. So how do we, how do we be a committed life, life by the cross? One of the passages, not on the screen, but it ran. I was doing my Bible study this morning early before I was preparing for the sermon, and I read John 12. And it was, it was random, but well, I don't think it's random. I think it was the Holy Spirit. John 12 is when Jesus goes to Mary and Lazarus, Mary of Bethany, and Mary falls on her knees, takes this ointment, breaks the jar, and pours it on Jesus' feet. And this wasn't just like one of you know, many perfumes. This was like the family heirloom. This was a, a treasured deal, probably like their retirement. It was very expensive. She breaks it, pours the perfume on Jesus' feet. And Judas is there. And what does Jesus say? He scoffs. He's like, what are you doing? You know, we could sold all this to the poor. And I believe John there is trying to contrast someone who's totally committed to serving Jesus. I mean, she takes, she takes this prized, treasured, expensive ointment and just, Judas would say, you just wasted it. You just poured it on his feet. To Judas, who would sell Jesus out, who's not committed at all. So how do we begin a committed life? It is life by the cross. What I mean is that in the cross, I see that cross, y'all see this cross. In the cross, you see Jesus' total commitment to you. To you. Last week, we talked about this week he knows, he knows what he's going to. It is death, and it is a bad death. It is not good. And yet, totally and unconditionally, he went to the cross for you, for us, for our sins, for our sake, so we could have life, so we could have freedom. That's how you can begin to be totally committed to Jesus, because we can see his total commitment to us in the cross, by the cross. Second, life by the cross is not only a committed life, life by the cross is a counter-cultural life. And this personally happens to be my favorite I just kind of like the phrase countercultural. But uh, we see this, and we'll see it in a couple ways, but we see it in Peter's anger. And you're like, where did it say Peter in this passage? Well, in John 18, the guy who took the sword and cut off the dude's ear says was Peter. Uh, now, if you know Peter, uh, Peter was uh, he's not having a good night. Uh, not a good night for Peter. He you know, draws his sword, cuts off the dude's ear, then he later denies Jesus so we see this anger, but Jesus is going to show us what a countercultural life is. How does this happen? Well, Peter, in taking the sword, I mean, he's saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take your kingdom. I'm going, to, I'm going to help you. I'm going to take it to them. We're going to do this. We're going to fight. You know, these Romans, they're not going to stop us. I'm going to do it. I'm going to help you. I mean, he's really trying to, he thinks he's doing a good thing. He's taking up the sword. He's like, I'm, going to, I'm willing to lose my life. I'm fighting for you. And Whoa. He's kind of like, chill out, man. <laughs> like, don't take up the sword. And what Jesus is really saying is, I'm going to take the sword for you. A lot of people see this, uh, these couple of verses. You know, don't take up the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And they think it is a, uh, you know, it's like anti-war. Um, don't ever go to war. 
Uh, I don't believe that is what Jesus is saying. I believe Jesus is talking about his death and how we don't get the cross at all and what Jesus has done on the cross, that we don't get it. And if we try to take the sword and take power, uh, that's not going to... That's not what Christ is about. Instead, Jesus took the sword for us. You're like, how do I not get the cross? What do you mean? The cross is countercultural. Let me give you three quick ways. One, the cross changes how we look at ourself, and it's countercultural. It, it, is, it is upside down. You see, the world, the culture would say, you get what you deserve. You work hard, you get what you deserve, which could be uh, success. Uh, some you know means of success that could be money or fame. You know you work hard, you, you get success. If you don't work hard and you're lazy, you get what you deserve. So you you don't deserve this or that or you don't deserve it. But you get the world would say what you deserve. The cross says Jesus gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. Here's what I mean. We deserve death. Now, this is one of the hardest things about starting off in Christianity, starting off in the faith. And I'll be honest, I mean, I hate preaching on this, but you can't, there's no way to get past it. Like all these great things we talk about, love, joy, peace, purpose, they had a price. They had a cost. And Jesus took it. He gets what we deserve. We have to begin with our sin. We sing about it. It's, Jesus took it. He took what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. He deserved the love, the acceptance, the home of the Father in heaven, and we get that. It is upside down. It's countercultural. Last week, I, taught, I keep going to last week because it was in the Garden too, but the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a mirror to it, which is the Garden of Eden. And I love contrasting the Garden of Eden with the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's a sword in both gardens. Here we see the sword that Peter took up. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. And they were cast out of the garden. And standing to guard the garden was an angel with this flaming sword. And no one could ever get into the garden again and go under the sword. It protected the garden. And here is the sword Jesus is saying, you get in because I'm taking the sword. One garden, the sword guarded, protected, where we couldn't get in. And this other garden, Jesus is saying, I'm going to take the sword. And that's how you get back in. That's how you get back in to be with the Father, to be with me, to be united. That's how you get to heaven. That's how it happens, because I take the sword. Another way the, this passage, or the cross, life by the cross, is countercultural. Isn't that how we look at one another? It's how we look at us, also how we look at one another. Here's what I mean. Peter's seeing it like, hey, we're the good guys. We're with the kingdom. We're with Jesus. Y'all are the bad guys. I cut off your ear. You know, it's good bad guys. What's interesting, doesn't say in this passage, but in another one, Jesus heals the man's ear. The bad guys. And it's like Jesus saying, Peter, I came for all of you. Like in my eyes, there is no good and bad guy. Yeah, I'm raising you all up as disciples, but I'm dying for them too. That, that'll rock your world if you think about that, that it changes your perception of everybody else. I talked about this last week, 
about you know, the worst of the worst, the baddest of the baddest. Because Jesus took the cup, everybody's got a chance. Everybody's on the same page. Before death, everybody can call on Christ, can receive Him as Savior. So here, Peter's looking at it as like, we're good, they're bad, we're going to take them out. Jesus saying, whoa, i got to heal him. I want to heal everybody. Man, we see this so much in, in our culture today. You know, you look at each other, or we look at other people, you know, good and bad. Maybe not guys, but maybe guys, but good and bad perspective. You know, you take, this is polarizing, but you take conservatives and liberals, okay? So... A liberal would say, you know, the conservatives, they're, they're really closet bigots. They really are. I and mean, that's what they say. And they're like limousine liberals. And they, they look down and they scorn, you know, at conservatives. And the conservatives would say, well, they, they really don't have traditional values. And so they'll look down, you know, at the liberals. And the gospel starts with the problem is me. It starts there. That's why a church can represent, you know, this broad swath of perspectives and views because we say the problem is me. And we may have different outlooks, but we can come together and we know that we're united in Christ, underneath Christ. He died for all of us. And maybe we'll figure some of this stuff out in heaven, whether we were right or wrong. But at the end of the day, there is no good bad guys. We're all lost sinners, fallen, saved by the grace of God on the cross, and that's life by the cross. It changes the way you look at everybody else. That's what it means. Love your neighbor. Who's different? Maybe different culturally, maybe different racially, maybe different politically. There's no difference in us. We're all sinners, saved by grace. Changes the way you look at yourself, changes the way you look at other people, changes our actions. It changes our actions. See, Peter took the sword, and swords represent power and authority. And whoever has the most swords wins, or whoever has the most armies wins, or whoever most guns win, and the nation with the most power wins. Jesus turned that upside down. Countercultural. Whether you're a Christian or not, Jesus is the most influential person in all of history. Everybody says it. Scholars, I mean, not just preachers, scholars, non-Christians. He's the most influential. He had no power. He gave all his power up. He came to serve. Mark 10, 45 says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served as kings and rulers, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, life by the cross changes our conception of how we would change the world. Not by power, not by might, by service, by serving one another. We're starting two uh, initiatives here at Bellwether that are all tied to this, all about serving. Some of y'all have heard a little bit about them. I'm just simply saying it today. You're going to hear more about it in weeks to come. One is in the next 20 months to the end of 2015, uh, we're going to give more. Give more of what God has given us, of our resources, of our tithe. I say this because life by the cross changes how you give. The culture would say, you make more, you get more. Jesus would say, you give more. This campaign is called Raise More, simply. And we're, we're going to raise a million dollars by the end of 2015. And I'm going to tell you, I'll just be as specific as I can. Half of that, 500000 is going to a missions fund. I've got a vision. We've got a vision. If anybody ever wants to take a short-term mission trip, I never want finances 
to be a hindrance. We want to start, literally, you'd think of it as an endowment, 500000 to help scholarship people. I believe short-term missions changes lives. We're going to build this up. The rest would, would pay off this blessing that God has given us and begin for the next step on this property. It changes how we give, how we serve. The other initiative is, you know, I, I, I've, God's really convicted me of this. You know, how does a neighborhood or a city think about a church? How would they think about Bellwether? People have thought different things about Bellwether. Oh, that's a, that's a church that meets in the courthouse. Oh, that's a church that meets at J. Oh, I, I hear y'all are like really real there, right? You know, people say different things. Now, you know, a lot of folks say, oh, yeah, the church on the corner, across from Whole Foods. Oh, yeah, man. You know, it's so pretty, beautiful, all that. Okay, that's going to be the conception, the perspective of folks of this church uh, for a time. But I always keep going back to the question, like, if God just removed Bellwether from this planet, would anybody miss us? I know y'all would, but I want the city to miss us. I want this metro area to miss us. So, we're starting a local mission called Meet the Need. And the infrastructure and leadership has already been built. Miss Emily Brazel sitting right there, if I heard. Sorry, i call you out. And Jill helped as well. But it is a, is a food ministry. We cook meals here and we give them away to love our neighbor. And we're going to say and ask, hey, would every member, if you feel called to this church, take at least 10 meals and give them either to your neighbor or somebody you'd like to invite to the church or somebody who's going through a bad time or somebody who's in need. Just somebody you know that would appreciate a gesture of kindness. It's a way to serve these neighborhoods. It's a way to serve this city. It's a way to serve our metro area because we've got a lot of folks who don't live in this area. We've got folks that live in Madison. We've got folks that live in Rankin. Take at least 10 meals and give them away of your neighbor. Now, that would mean if you're you know, a husband, spouse member, like my wife and I, that would mean 20, okay, because I'm a member, she's a member. I'm not good at math, but I know that. So you're going to hear more about that, but we've done the math, and if, we just, if all the members did that, we'd give out 2,500 meals just in this year, just to love this city. No amen? Amen, man. I mean, I think it's an amen. Praise God. Well, I, thank you, thank you. I know not everybody's clapping. I, I get it. I get it. I, we're not wired to serve. Let me just be honest there. We're wired to serve us. Countercultural. You see what I'm saying? It's the best way I can make that point. I'm like, I don't know about that. The gospel calls us something different. To serve our neighbor, love our neighbor. Last thing. The life by the cross. Committed life. Countercultural life. It's a calm life. It's a calm life, even as I'm getting all jacked up up here. It's a calm life. At the end of this passage, they're coming to take Jesus. And just think about it. They're coming to arrest him. He know, man, this is it. He's like, I've had the quiet time in the garden. I've had, I got to go. I'm about to be whipped. I'm about to be spit on, crown of thorns, cross, all that. And he's so calm. You're like, how do you know he's calm? Well, look at what he says. He, he kind of tweaks them. He says, you know, you never came out against me, but now you're coming. But he says, all this has taken place so that scriptures may be fulfilled. Here's how that shows a calm life. He says, you're coming after me. Hell's about to fall on me. It already started. Yet God has a plan. God's still at work. The scriptures are being fulfilled. I trust in that. I know that. Then even further, it says, all the disciples left him and fled. Does that mean God's abandoned him? No. God's still working. God's plan is still moving. 
What does that say to us in our life today? What it says, you know, there's a phrase, carry your cross. There's a song, carry your cross. We all have crosses. We all have burdens to bear. And so as you're carrying your cross, you can know God is still at work. God is still doing something. Even if you're in the pit, even if you're in the mire, even if you're like, if you don't have a job searching for a job, even if, you know, you've, you've had a tough time, you know, moving from, I don't know, 8th grade to ninth grade or ninth grade to 10th grade for our youth. You know, even if, like, I have no direction in my life, I don't know what I'm going to do, God's still at work. It's a calm life. And then we could literally say, life by the cross, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. There's a, uh, there's a passage in 2 Kings. Elisha, the prophet, uh, tells, asks God, prays, would you open uh, the army's eyes uh, because the army is fighting an invading force and would you say, help them to see all the legions of angels that are surrounding us. And God opens the eyes and they see legions of angels surrounding them. If you have Christ in you, if you have life by the cross, you have legions of angels surrounding you. God's at work. He's got a plan. We cling to Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. Cling to Joseph. You're probably more familiar with that story. Joseph in Genesis. His brothers sold him. Later he rescued his family. He says, what you meant for ill and evil, God used for good. Life by the cross is a calm life that you know as bad as it seems, God does not abandon you. And God's using this time. God's using you. Life by the cross, a committed life, a countercultural life, a calm life. I ask you, do you want that life? You can't have it. By the cross. You look to the cross. It begins there. Last thing I'd say is, some of you may be asking, why do I want that? You're like, I'm really, you know, for me and, and to be happy. Why would I want that? You want that because that is the only living hope. Living hope in this life, in your world, in our time, in this universe. It's the only living hope. We want hope. We put our hope in many other things. We put it in a career. You know, we put it in a salary. We put it in stocks. We put it in a spouse. We put it in our kids. I, and I see that now with raising kids most of all. You know, the life we didn't lead, we want our kids to lead it, and we put our hope in them. All of that will lead us void one day. Even our kids, somebody told my wife and I, I said, you know, man, I just love my kids. My hope is in them. You know, it's great high school seeing them grow. And then in college, you know, after that, it's downhill from there because, you know, reality will start and hope, the hope is gone. You know, they'll, they'll mess up somehow. Hey, all I'm saying is we put our hopes in everything you want that life because the living hope is Jesus. And it is a better life. It's a better life. I want our hope to be in Him. I want us to live life by the cross. You can start today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for, first, your, just, your unconditional, total commitment to us in moving to the cross. I thank you for a way of life that, that turns worlds upside down. And we see that in the gospel. That you get what we deserve. And we get love and acceptance and peace. Forgiveness and purpose and joy. I pray we claim that by the cross in Jesus' name.
And I pray for your calmness. Because I know, I know people are going through pits and valleys right now. And we could look at Scripture and the power of Scripture and see in this, this, this massive hell that you went through and you were calm because you know God was working and God had a plan and He will bring us through that plan. Convict these people of that by your Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.